One of the problems that we as Christians wrestle with almost interminably is the issue of authority. What for us as, as Christians is our ultimate authority? We're living in an era, I think, when scriptural authority has uh, been superseded by various other authorities. And many Christians today uh, derive their understanding of who God is and what he's like and, and what we as Christians should do from dreams, from voices that they hear, sometimes inaudible voices, voices within themselves, from urges from within. And uh, these, to them, become the ultimate authority. And so the question is, to what extent can we trust that sort of thing? To what extent is it valid to appeal to a dream, for instance, or a voice that we hear? Is that God's will? And to, to what extent are we dependent upon another authority? The authority that's traditionally been the, the authority for Christians, and that is the Word of God. It's that issue that uh, Jesus is concerned with in this section of the Sermon uh, on the Mount that we want to look at this morning. Turn to the fifth chapter of Matthew. And let's begin reading with verse 17. <clears throat> Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a number of observations that I would like to make on this, uh, this paragraph. The first is that Jesus here is speaking of the entire Old Testament when he says in verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. He's not talking merely about the law of Moses. It's not the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, or the law given at Sinai that Jesus is concerned with. It's the entire Old Testament. This phrase, the law and the prophets, was a shorthand way that the Jews had of speaking of the entire scriptures, the scriptures that, that they had. Their Bible was divided into three parts. There was the law, the first five books of Moses. And there were the prophets, which were our books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and some of the larger prophets, Ezekiel and, and uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Those were the law and the prophets. And then there were the writings that contained all the other scriptures. When a Jew, therefore, wanted to talk about the Bible, his Bible, the Old Testament, he often used the expression, the law and the prophets, to refer to all of Scripture. Now, there was no, test, no New Testament written, of course, at this time. So Jesus is not here talking about uh, our New Testament. He's referring to his Bible, the Old Testament. But it's very clear from this statement that Jesus is saying that the Old Testament, his Bible, has authority. All the Bible. Now, we as Christians accept the authority of the Old Testament for that reason. It's because Jesus subscribed to its authority. And as Christians, therefore, we can have no other authority. We're really not at liberty to question Jesus' point of view. 
If Jesus is Lord, then we have to be subject to him as Lord, and we simply have to accept his perspective on all things. And when he says the Old Testament is authoritative, then for us the Old Testament is authoritative. And we as Christians believe that the New Testament is authoritative on another basis. It is because Jesus himself lent his authority to that portion of our Bible. The last 27 books of the Bible were written by the apostles whom Jesus himself commissioned to write scripture and plant churches and to be his special messengers. They had unique authority. So we as Christians subscribe to the authority of the Bible because Jesus humbly submitted to the authority of the Old Testament and he lent his authority to the New Testament. Now the second thing that I notice about this paragraph is that Jesus here links the continuity of the Old Testament with that of the universe. He says that not one, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be will disappear from the law until heaven and earth disappear. In other words, as long as the universe exists, then scripture stands. If you wake up tomorrow morning and the sun doesn't rise, then you could probably assume, you could question the authority of the scriptures. But as long as the universe exists, the word of God stands. Now, the practical import of that is that we as Christians go back to scripture for our authority. We don't go on. John makes that point in his second epistle when he, he describes certain people that were going from house to house preaching another gospel. And their gospel, he said, is one that runs ahead, that is, it goes beyond the apostles. The early church accepted the Old Testament and the preaching of the apostles as the final authority. These men were going beyond their authority. They were adding to scripture. They were writing new theology. They were saying they received additional revelation. John says, don't let them in your house. Now, he's not here talking about members of cults who come knocking on your door. We should invite them in and we should share the gospel with them if there's an opportunity. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who come and teach another gospel that's not rooted in the message that Jesus and the apostles gave. So the point is that our authority is scripture. The Old Testament and the writings of the apostles and we go back to scripture. We put our roots down in the Word. And that's how we know what God's will is. The third thing to be observed here is that Jesus says even the smallest details of Scripture are important. It's all significant. Not the least stroke of a pen, not the smallest letter will disappear until everything is accomplished. You're probably more familiar with the uh, King James translation, not a jot or a tittle will disappear. The jot was the, the Hebrew yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet. It's a tiny little, little uh, mark on the page. The tittle or the horn, as Jesus calls it, was a projection on a Hebrew letter that distinguished one letter from another. It's the way you d d distinguish the D letter, for instance, that letter of the alphabet from the R. Just a tiny little projection. The point is, Jesus felt that even the words of Scripture were important. They were significant. They had authority. Jesus and the apostles not only asserted that details were significant, they taught on that basis. Much of their te teaching was based on, on the minutia of the text, the verb tense, or the way a sentence is constructed. They, they base doctrine on grammar. 
Because words were important. Jesus, for instance, in his teaching on the, on the resurrection, bases his belief in the resurrection on the way a sentence is constructed in the Hebrew Old Testament. He's debating with the Sadducees who rejected the, the resurrection. They were the rationalists of that day. And they didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so they rejected the resurrection. Jesus says, have you never read the scriptures? That God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The form of the Hebrew sentence that he's quoting is it's a nominal clause. That is, it's a present tense, ongoing uh, thought. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am. And so Jesus bases his argument in his debate with the Sadducees on a grammatical form. You see, grammar was important. Words were important. The smallest detail of the Hebrew text is significant. Paul will base a doctrine on the fact that a noun is singular instead of plural in the Old Testament. And the point that I want to make is that for Jesus and the apostles, the word of God was normative. That's what we build everything upon. That's the authority, and that authority extends right down to the words on the page. Scripture is our authority because it's the authority that Jesus and the apostles appeal to. Now, that authority is not merely a theoretical authority, as we'll see. Most evangelicals believe in the authority of the Scripture, but what we mean when we say the Scriptures are authoritative is that we need to subject ourselves to it. And it's that point that, that Jesus makes in this paragraph also, because he says that his purpose in his teaching is to bring out the full meaning of the Old Testament. That's what he means in verse 17 when he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not going to set it aside. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, he doesn't mean by that that he's fulfilling the predictions made about Jesus. The word fulfill here means to fill Scripture out to its fullest meaning, to explicate it, to explain it in terms of its implications. And what he will tell us in the rest of this chapter is that the purpose of the Old Testament is to grant us a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most law-abiding people of that day in terms of keeping Scripture. But they had missed the entire point of the Old Testament because they didn't understand its deeper meaning. The purpose, as Jesus will tell us, the purpose of the Old Testament is to produce in us a love for other people. That's the mark of the citizens of the kingdom. And if we don't love people, then we just don't understand the Scriptures. We've missed the entire point of God's revelation to us. As Paul puts it, the goal of our instruction, the goal of his instruction as an apostle, is love. It proceeds from a, a sincere faith, a pure heart, and a good conscience. All our Bible study ought to make more loving people out of us. The point of Bible study is not to get your eschatological charts all set up so that everything is in line, all your ducks are in a row, and you know when, when things are going to happen next. And, and the point of studying Scripture is not to get the, your theology correct, although theology is important. As the song puts it, Beyond the sacred page we see you, Lord. The purpose of all Bible study is to see the Lord Jesus. And to be like him, you see. Paul, in his little uh, letter to Timothy, 
warns Timothy against youthful passions. And in context, he's not talking about sexual passions. He's talking about the passion that young men have, young men like Timothy, to argue and endlessly debate over issues and never come to any real conclusions and never allow the word of God to have its intended effect. He says, instead of arguing over scripture, be a good workman who, as we know from the King James, rightly divides the word of truth. The, the term means cut straight to the goal. Don't see Bible study as an end in itself. It's simply a means to the end of producing in you and others, Timothy, a more godlike character. So when we talk about authority, you see, we're not talking about a theoretical, just philosophical subject as it's often handled by us Christians. We're talking about a very practical issue. And if we understand the, the concept of authority, we will subject ourselves to the word and we will allow it to produce in us the love that uh, is the end of it all. Now what follows in uh, chapter 5 is Jesus' unfolding of the law to show its original intent. He reveals that love is at the heart of God's will. And he does that by going to well-known Old Testament passages and interpreting them from that standpoint. Now, he's not here saying that the Old Testament said this, and it's wrong. I'm superseding the Old Testament with a new teaching. That's sometimes the way these passages are understood. But it's very clear from the paragraph 17 through 20 that that's not what he's saying because he as, uh, uh, ascribes to the authority of Scripture. He's not going to abolish it. He wants to go down to the deeper level and show us God's original intent in the law. And what he does is begin with the Ten Commandments because that's the place any Jew would begin. That's the most succinct statement of the will of God. And he begins... In the middle of the, of the Ten Commandments with the second table of the law, which has to do with personal relationships, because it's there, as at uh, perhaps no other point in the law, that you see how, how love operates. He begins with the sixth commandment, and he explains that commandment in terms of its original intent, and then he goes to the seventh commandment and explains that, and then he moves to other portions of the law. And we're going to take the first three of Jesus' interpretations of the law this morning. His teaching on murder, adultery, and divorce. Let's read uh, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And here he's quoting Exodus 20:13. Jesus is a good teacher. He cites the text and then he interprets it and then he applies it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother, Rekha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last, the last penny. So he begins by citing the text, and then he interprets the text in verses 22. Uh, in verse 22. 
It tells us that the Old Testament prohibited murder. And the intent of that law was to protect a brother from my hostility. But he fills out the intent of that law by letting me know that uh, that hostility can be revealed in in other ways. God still has to protect, protect my brother from me and my anger against him. Because while I may not murder him, I can show my dislike for him in other ways. Here's a brother who's created in the image of God. And uh, while my behavior toward him in terms of the law may be absolutely correct, I've never laid a hand on him, I've never struck him in anger, I've never uh, tried to take his life, and, uh, and yet still I can miss the entire intent of the law because God wants me to be reconciled with my brother and he wants me to deal with my hostility on other levels. And that hostility is revealed by my anger and resentment towards someone who has treated me unjustly. And it's also revealed by the terms that I use when I refer to him. The term rakok is an Aramaic word, which is a derisive term. It's like our term knucklehead. It means empty-headed, vain fellow, knothead. And all of these terms that uh, we throw out, you know, and, and they seem innocent. And very often they are. But they indicate the intent of our heart. The word for fool is the word in which we get our word moron. Jesus said, if I call my brother a dummy and really mean it, then I've missed the point of the law. You watch Sesame Street much? That's an expression that occurs quite frequently on Sesame Street. You're a dummy. Well, it may be innocent at times, or it may not be. It may really indicate the intent of our heart. I uh, was talking to a, a man on the phone the other day who was giving me a hard time. And when I got through talking to him, I was a bit upset, and I hung up the phone, and I said, boy, what a weird guy. And uh, my nine-year-old son happened to be standing there, and he announced to his teacher at school that I had a friend who was a weird guy. <laughs> and uh, that sort of thing ripples on and on, you see, and and it just indicates the intent of my heart. I really did not like my brother at that point. I was really kind of sore about the reaction that I had gotten. You see what Jesus is saying? These innocent terms that we use really indicate the intent of our heart. And I can say, well, I've never murdered my, my neighbor. As far as I know, I've never murdered anyone in my entire life. I have no intention of ever murdering anyone. And my, my behavior before the law in that regard is impeccable. But down underneath, there are a whole bunch of people that I really don't like. They bug me. I resent them. And I show it in the terms that, that I use. So Jesus is saying that we really need to deal with the intent of our heart. See, That the, the import of that law, the intent of that law, is to teach me to love my brother. And it will show up in the efforts that I make to be reconciled to a brother. <clears throat> It says in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He's assuming here that I've wronged my brother. My brother has something against me. Now maybe he wronged me too, but I find in most of these uh, these conflicts that I have wronged him in root as well. Maybe he even initiated the action and and he got under my skin, and I reacted the wrong way. But the point is, 
I am at fault. I have offended my brother. He has something against me. And Jesus says, if you come to the altar and your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled to your brother. In other words, the, all the sacrifice, the service that you offer to God is meaningless if you harbor animosity toward a brother or he harbors hostility toward you. You can go teach your Sunday school class. You can pray mighty prayers in public. But uh, if, you, if you aren't reconciled to your brother, you've missed the whole point. So you need to go and, and effect a reconciliation. Leave your gift there because God really isn't interested in your service when you have this problem going on with your brother. And then the second illustration or application that he uses is that of the adversary, who again has something against you. And here he's talking strictly in legal terms. The first illustration is taken out of personal life. It's where I've wronged a brother and he's upset with me. I need to go to him and be reconciled. Where I have done something illegal and I have, my brother has a legal case against me and he takes me to court. Jesus says, don't wait until the issue is settled in court. Go now. Settle the thing out of court, no matter what it costs you. Be reconciled to your brother. And if you don't, you deserve to be thrown in jail. That's Jesus' point. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penalty. The last penalty. The penalty is just. So don't wait for, for secular law courts to settle an issue like this. If a brother has something against you, if, uh, if, anyone, if you've wronged anyone and they have legal cause, then settle the issue. Because in so doing, you fulfill the intent of the law. Now, this is a good time for self-examination for me and, and perhaps for you. And the way I react to my neighbor when he lets his dog out and, and he dumps trash out all over the, the yard and I'm muttering under my breath about the idiot who lets his dog run loose. And just in general, the attitudes that we have toward one another, they're expressed by the terminology that we use, our refusal to be reconciled to a brother that we've offended out of pride because we think we've been offended as well. And this is an issue where we need to keep short accounts. Maybe this afternoon you need to call someone up on the phone or go over to your neighbor's house and apologize for something that you've done. Because, you see, that's what love is. It seeks reconciliation. It wants to serve. Now, the second illustration that Jesus uses from the law is the seventh commandment. In verses 27 through 30, here the issue is adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better, you to, better for you to lose, pardon me, to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now again, he cites a text, the seventh commandment from Exodus uh, 20, 14. And the issue here is uh, adultery, by a violation of love, love for your wife. But Jesus reinterprets it by telling us that the intent of that law needs to be fulfilled in the heart. Because a man can be outwardly faithful, impeccable in his behavior, in terms of adultery. He's never committed adultery. But inwardly, he's unfaithful. And the result of that inward unfaithfulness is that it erodes away the love that he has for his wife. That's Jesus' point. God wants us to love our wives with all of our hearts. 
And he's trying to spare us from those attitudes that affect the love that we have for our wives. And if we, as men, permit sexual fantasies to persist in our mind, we can't help the attacks, but if we allow them to persist, it will, Jesus tells us, eventually erode away our love for our wife. And I've always interpreted this passage as though Jesus is saying, if you do this, you won't do this. If you deal with the thoughts, you won't deal with, you won't be involved in the actions. But in studying through this passage again, it occurred to me that, that Jesus doesn't make that point. He's talking about the, the intent of the law, which is to produce love. And the serious thing about, about uh, sexual fantasies and lust is that it does something to our love for our wives. It just cannot help but prevent a full expression of our love for them. And it's not a small thing. It's a very serious thing. Because it really does affect the way we feel about our wives. And we can say, well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter as long as I'm outwardly faithful, as long as I'm not sleeping around. Then that doesn't affect my relationship with my wife. But it does, you see. And Jesus says it's such a serious thing that it requires stern measures. We need to discipline ourselves severely. Be stern with ourselves. And chasing those members that evoke the fantasies. That's what he means by these rather harsh words. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. That is, deal with those members that evoke the thoughts that uh, lead to a lessening of, of, of your love for your wife or your husband, as the case may be. Now, what is it that provokes sexual fantasies? Well, it's what we see and it's what we touch. And so we need to deal severely with ourselves in those areas. Now, he's not speaking literally here. You don't need to chop off your hand if you have trouble in that area or pluck out your eyes. He's speaking metaphorically or symbolically. We need to guard our, what comes in through the eye gate. You see, what do you look at? What do we read? What do we watch on television? What sort of movies do we go to? What kind of literature do we read? Now, do we take the long look when someone walks in the room? Those are the things that we need to guard against. And Jesus' point is if it were severe at that point in our life, then, then the, the thoughts, though they'll still be there, are not so easily provoked, evoked. They're not stimulated as quickly. Jesus says it's better for you to lose one part of your body, one member of your body, than for your whole body to go into hell. It's a serious thing. It's really the same point that Paul is making in Romans 13, 14, when he says, make, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Don't do those things that make it easy for the flesh to fail. Because what he wants is a wholehearted love for our wives, for our, for our husbands. And the third issue, third illustration, third uh, matter of the law, which Jesus interprets, interprets for us, is found in verses 31 and 32. Here the issue is divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a woman so divorced commits adultery. Now, here's an illustration where the Jews had grossly misinterpreted an Old Testament passage. Because you will not find a statement in the Old Testament along the lines of Jesus' citation here. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was actually a rabbinic misinterpretation of an Old Testament passage. 
It would be helpful, I think, to look at the passage, so let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. It's this passage which the Jews had either deliberately or innocently misinterpreted, misapplied. Found in verses uh, 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his family, or if he dies again, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God, uh, the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now here's one case where the, where the interpreters of that time had put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. They, uh, they really didn't, uh, carefully, uh, exegete the text. What we have here is what they had in their Hebrew Bibles. And if you read it carefully, you'll say that Jesus is not saying, put your wife away if she displeases you. Knowing the heart of man, he knows that there are some men who will put their wife away for almost any cause. And the term here, an indecent thing, is an ambiguous term. No one knows precisely what, he, what Moses is referring to. But it doesn't matter. Because he's not saying there might be an occasion where when your wife does something indecent, and that's, that's the cause for putting her away. He's saying if, if a man, these are all hypothetical expressions, conditional clauses, if a man puts his wife away for some cause, she burns the bagels or whatever, and he throws her out of the house, and notice he does not say he must give her a bill of divorcement, and he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her husband can't have her back. That's the point of the law. If you send your wife away, you can't have her back. And the purpose of this law was to protect women, because men in those days treated their women like junk. And if they burned the biscuits or whatever, it was out, and they'd give them a bill of divorcement, which would satisfy the legal requirements of divorce, and the woman then would go to another man because women in those days uh, seldom could exist as uh, just single people. There was no place for a single woman. She'd be married to someone else and he would discard her. You can't have her back because you can't treat women that way. That's the point. They're not junk. You can't just throw them out of the house. That's your wife. And even if you do it legal-like and you give her a bill of divorcement, you can't have her back because you just can't treat a woman like that. That's the point of the law. And the Jews completely overlooked or misunderstood the point of the law. And they said, all right, if we divorce our wives, the important thing is that we divide the inheritance equally and they get half of what we sell the house for and they get the adequate alimony and we'll pay for the kids and we'll do it all right and we'll satisfy the law. And Jesus said, no, you're missing the whole point. You can't treat a woman like that. That's the point. And if you marry her, that's your wife until death separates you. You stick to her like glue even if she's not particularly easy to live with, even if she's not exactly what you thought she was when you married her, doesn't make any difference. You're married. And the only thing that would break the relationship is that if she walks out and forms another relationship with another man, he's not talking merely about the fact of adultery. She may be adulterous. She still could be taken back. 
But if she determines in her heart that she's going to live with another man and she commits adultery, then that breaks the marriage. But unless that happens, she is yours for better or for worse. And you stick to her like glue and don't throw her out of the house. You love her as God loves Israel. And the Jews were saying, well, as long as we don't hurt her too much, as long as she's provided for financially, then it's all right. And Jesus says, it is not all right. God hates divorce because it destroys people. It doesn't say here, God hates divorcees. That's an important distinction. He does not. He loves divorcees, but he hates divorce because it's so destructive. So don't divorce your wife. That's Jesus' point. Love her. You may have to start loving her like your enemy, but start loving her. Then you can love her like your friend. Then you can love her like, like your wife. So you can learn. God will give you everything you need to love her. Stick with her. And by so doing, you fulfill the intent of the law. Do you see what Jesus is saying? That these laws that seem to be so harsh are really intended to teach us how to love people. That's the point of it all. And as you read through this series of interpretations and you come down to verse 47 we'll take a longer look next sunday jesus says if you only greet your brothers what are you doing more than others and that's exactly what he says in verse 20 of the same chapter i tell you that unless your righteousness overflows more literally than the pharisees then you've missed the whole point what do you do more than others we must not take our our guidelines from the world we must take our guidelines from the Word of God. That's our authority that we rest on. And ultimately what the Word of God teaches us is to love people to an extent that the world doesn't know. We have to love more than the world. And you know, you can't do that out of yourself. You can't do that by self-effort. It's the love of Christ. That gives us the power to love one another on that level. It comes from depending upon Him. Relying upon Him. And when we do, then we have the love that we need to fulfill the intent of the law. I was downstairs just a minute ago and uh, Richie Spencer was hanging on to his mother and he didn't want to go in the, in the uh, church time for some reason. And Norma was holding on to him and trying to get him down on the ground so she could get him in the in the classroom, and he said, Mother, I have one more thing to tell you. And so she picked him up, gave him a big hug, and he said, I love you. <laughs> and she put him down the way he went. And I thought, that's the last word. I love you. That's, that's what God wants to produce in our lives. Not a fierce, hard self-righteousness and correctness about everything, although we need to be correct. But the purpose of being right and understanding the truth is that we might be more loving and have a love that exceeds the love of the world. Now let's let's pray together, shall we? And let's uh, take this moment to evaluate ourselves. Maybe there's a brother who has something against you and you need to go to him today and clear that matter up. Express your your sorrow that you wronged him and ask for forgiveness.